6 in our, in our journey through the Psalms. Psalm 6 is a prayer in, in time of distress. And, uh, you know, I just love just, just the, song, the psalms that are so appropriate to a lot of things that we're going through in our lives. We can always open them up. We can always uh, just see how God's using them to minister to us. Um, so, in the title, it says, To the Chief Musician with Stringed Instruments on an Eight-Stringed Harp, a Psalm of David. Now, this, this title, this eight-stringed harp, it's really not a, uh, it's an unknown instrument. It could be an eight-stringed harp, or it could be on the octave, which in the Hebrew it translates something like that, which means that there may be a lower bass melody accompanying the lyrics of lament. And I don't know about you, but, you know, in music, certain um, keys or certain tones of songs give us a feeling, and uh, this might be one of those songs. A minor key will give a song a sad feel, where a major key will give a song a happy feel. And studies have actually confirmed that that, that the similarities between happy speech and major keys, and sad speech and minor keys, are are there. So. This could be that it's on an eight-stringed harp, or that it's played in a way that um, that goes along with the uh, the lament of the psalm. It's a psalm of David. It's a lament of David crying out to the Lord amidst his hopelessness. And there, are, I know there are times in all of our lives that we can relate to that. In verses one through seven, David's pouring out his soul before God. And it's almost as if it's a defeatist frame of mind that he has. So, um, in verses 1 through 4, we'll read, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. So we see here that David's expressing helplessness here. He doesn't ask God to prevent his judgment, but he asks for mercy in the midst of it. And I think sometimes that's where we need to be. We need to understand God's sovereignty in our lives, understand our weakness, our frailty, our our failings and understand that God will be righteous to judge and just and just ask for his mercy in that. Um, because we know that he's his mercy is is deep. His mercies are new each day. Verse two speaks of David's entire person being affected by the distress that he's going through. It doesn't necessarily point to a physical illness, but I know that when we're going through mental or psychological, uh, spiritual downtimes, or just there's a lot of distress in our life, that can affect us physically also. So David is sort of giving us a, a poetic way of saying, this is affecting my whole being. 
My, the entirety of who I am is being affected by what I'm going through, these distresses. Verse 3, David says, asks the question, how long? How long? And, I, and I'm sure that we can all relate to that. There are times that we just say, God, how much longer do I need to go through this? And I think the answer is, as long as God sees necessary to bring you to the place that He wants to. You know, there are, our timing, we're always very impatient. Our, our timing is never the same as God's timing. When it is, it's, um, it's, it's an awesome thing, but um, sometimes He allows us to go through times of distress or trouble and and it's longer than we want. And we ask that question, how long? Just know God knows best. His timing is always perfect. In verses 5 through 7, David speaks of, in, in a tone of hopelessness. It says here, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of my enemies. Now, in verse 5, David speaks of death in a pretty typical Old Testament way. Limited. It's, it's limited in knowledge. It's limited in understanding of the afterlife. A lot of times we see David speak of the grave or Sheol through the Psalms. And the language that he uses really speaks more about the, the inability to continue worship and praise as he does while he's alive. So that, so that death, David sees as an, an inability to continue that praise of God. He has an incomplete knowledge of what death is. Although he knows that he knows that there will be something after this life. So we can praise God that through the revelation of Scripture we have a full understanding of the afterlife. In verse 6. David reveals more about the effects of the trouble he faces. He says, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. He's, he's losing sleep because of the distress he's going through. He cries in his bed all night. You know, I mean, he just pours his heart out to us and to the Lord. I mean, we can really just put ourselves right in David's shoes. When he speaks like that. And I love that about him. He's actually prematurely aging because of the persecution he's undergoing. He says, it, he says, My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows old because of my enemies. And then in verses 8 through 10, he turns his attention from his own distresses, he turns his attention to, onto his enemies. Almost in a defiant way, certainly in a bold way, David does this. And in verse 8, it says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. 
Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So all of a sudden, David's distress turns to boldness. David's distress turns to defiance, turns to trust in the Lord. It says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. He understands, God hears his cries. You know, and that's when we get to a point in our, in our time of trouble, in our time of distress, where we can just put all of our faith and trust in God. Understanding that he hears us. Understanding that our, our prayers don't go unnoticed by God. They may not be answered in a time or even in the way that we expect, but God still hears us. And, and that's, that's encouraging to us. And David has boldness. He shows us where his confidence lies. It lies in the knowledge that God hears him and he will overcome his enemies. And then in verse 9 and 10, the basis for his change of attitude. And he says, the Lord has heard my supplication and he will receive my prayer. That's all David needs to know. That's all we need to know is that God hears us and he receives our prayer. And then he says, all my, let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So then, I love the way the Psalms, and so often the Psalms do this, they start off in a lament or in distress in times of trouble. And they end up in rejoicing and trust and belief in putting our our faith and trust in, in God. And, and David works through this psalm and works through his distress and just shows us that God will intervene on his behalf and, and on our behalf. So now in verse 7, in, in Psalm 7, a prayer for deliverance from his enemies. A prayer for deliverance from his enemies. This psalm is one that specifically identifies um, it as one to be sung, as one to be sung, as it says in the title, The Meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. It's also identified as a meditation. And meditation could mean something that is seriously considered, as we would think of the word meditation. Or it also could mean wavering, a sense of wandering or even wandering in the face of great difficulty. Maybe we can speak of it as feeling out of balance. When things are, are going wrong in our lives, we, we feel out of whack, we, we, we waver, we wonder, we question. And David, this meditation could be expressing that. And I think we can relate to that. It speaks to those ideas and feelings that as we see in many of the Psalms, and in Psalm 6 and in Psalm 7, it ends up with an awesome sense of God's ability and His willingness to deliver His people out of suffering. So in verses 1 through 5, we see David's concern as he begs the attention of God. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, 
rending me in pieces, while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or, if, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. So, David works through here as he's begging God to give him attention and give him, uh, give him relief from his enemies. He also gets to a point where he is actually pressing forward his innocence. It sounds as though in verses 3 and 4 he's actually confessing his guilt. But he's not. They're really pronouncements of innocence with boldness against his false accusers. You know, it's, it's, it says in verse, in verse 2, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Now, I'm not sure if David was actually being torn in pieces by a lion. It's probably hyperbole that he's using, poetic license that he's using. But because of what we see here, in the next couple of verses, it's possible that his reputation was being torn down. It's possible that he had false accusers that were putting forth these accusations against him, and that it felt like he was being torn to pieces because of them. You know, uh, Will Rogers wrote, it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, but you can lose it in a minute. Actually, now you can lose it in a second. All people have to do is make one click on the computer, and your reputation is is uh, is lost. Now, they even have companies now out there that can that can uh, save your reputation, Rep Reputation Defender, and all of these other companies, because it's so easy to just destroy someone with false accusations. And David was going through that. Verses 3 through 5 may seem, like I said, like confessions of guilt, but it's actually David just pronouncing his innocence with boldness and humility. It's, it's a strange thing. It's like when we're being torn down by someone falsely, we still need to have a sense of humility in that. And we also need to trust in God that he's going to overcome that. And then in verses 6 through 16, David appears before God to plead his case. He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded, so the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. 
Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out, and he has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his crown. Wow. David's speaking of God's righteous judgment, that he's a just judge, that he will not allow the wicked to get away with their evil deeds without being judged. And David declares his innocence and welcomes God's judgment. Now, can we do that? Can we do that? It says here in verse 8, The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. It, it really takes someone who knows their position in the Lord, like David did, to welcome that judgment of God upon, upon our lives. If we're confident in our blamelessness, we can invite God to judge us and know that as He examines our heart, He'll find no offense. But can we do that very often? I don't know. I find it difficult. I don't know if I could boldly ask God to search my heart and judge me accordingly. That's difficult to do. And then in verse 17, we see David's composure as he just patiently waits on the Lord for the verdict. He says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So, Again, we see David take us through the, the meditation of, of the, pers the persecution that's on his life, those who are falsely accusing him, and then his boldness and confidence in knowing that he's righteous before God, he's welcoming his judgment, and then, he's, and then he just leaves it in his hands. Leaves it in his hands. And I love that about, about the Psalms. Just gives us... It just gets us to a point, so many of them, where we just say, God, I'm just going to place it at your feet. Whatever I'm going through, whatever weakness, whatever, whatever I'm going through that I just can't deal with, God, I'm going to just place it at your feet. You know best. You judge righteously. And you'll overcome my enemies. That's, that's confidence in the Lord. And then in Psalm 8, a praise for the God of creation. It says in the title, To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a song of David. The instrument of Gath, we don't really know what it is. It's literally Giddeth, which means wine press. It could mean an instrument that was used, used in the region of Gath at that time. Or maybe music that they played while they were Pressing the grapes in the wine press. I mean, you know, the the titles are interesting, but there's not much really said about them. This psalm has several elements. First, it's a psalm of praise, as indicated by the first and the last verses. It's also a creation psalm, which declares God's glory and His power and His authority in the creative process. And it's also a recognition 
of the inherent dignity of man as God's greatest, greatest accomplishment in creation. And I love that part of it. So in verse 1, we have an introductory praise. O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. So a double expression of praise. We see Lord, all caps, which is the covenant name Yahweh, the name of God given to Moses in the wilderness. And then we see the second Lord, which is really an expression of God's sovereignty. And that's where David, Dave, David takes us through the sovereign, the covenant name of God to his sovereignty. And then he goes into creation and he's praising him for that. Two pairs of contrasts in verses 2 through 8, and we'll read through them. It says, Out of the mouth of babes and of nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. So verse 2. Verse 2 sets the stage for the first contrast. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. In Matthew 21, Jesus quotes this verse. A little different. Out of the mouth of babes, you have perfected praise. When speaking to the religious leaders of his time, almost as, as a mock or a contrast between the religious leaders who really didn't praise God, in the right way, and out of the mouth of infants, God has perfected praise. And so we see that contrast. We also see that this verse gives us an understanding of the contempt God's enemies have toward Him. They're self-sufficient. They don't need God. Where infants and babes, they're dependent on their parents. So, God looks at us, those who put our trust and our faith in, in Him, as those, those dependent infants. And He, and that's, that's really how we should be. That's our relationship with God. It should be like that. Verses 3 through 8 give us the second contrast. That's between the enormity of all the created universe and the relative smallness of man. Now, God, God created the entire universe, yet, yet it's measured in a way that makes it minuscule in comparison to Him. Verse 4, it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Verse 4 speaks of the relative insignificance of man, and David's wonder that God even pays him any mind at all. And I think we sometimes can sense that. Like, God, why, why do you pay me any mind? What am I to you, God? 
you know, and I, there's, there's a part of us, I think, that should be there. There's a part of us, I think, that should recognize our insignificance and our dependence on Him. The phrase, visit Him, is the same as give attention to or to care for. What is the Son of Man that you should care for Him or give Him any attention, God? And it's not a bad perspective to have if we see ourselves in the light of God's awesome power. But David also gives us an insight into the mind of God in relationship to us. In verses 5 through 8, we see our place in the order of creation. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. That's us. That's man. That's God, God's creation. We have been given dominion over all of creation. So God sees us as special. He sees us as something definitely separate. We can relate to God unlike any other of His creation can. We have intellect. We have will. We have emotion. We have reason. We were made in the image of God, it says in the Genesis account. We are made in His likeness. So we relate to God unlike any other of His creation. And so he gave us that special place. And we need to recognize that and understand that. And then in verse 9, the same as verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent your name in all the earth. So it begins with praise. It has just a recognition of God's sovereignty, his authority, his power, his, his, uh, his greatness. And then it ends with praise. And um, I think that's, a, that's probably even a good pattern for prayer for us. Begin with praise, speak of his, his awesomeness, his sovereignty, and then end in a, in a time of praise. So uh, moving on to Psalm 9. This is a prayer and thanksgiving for the Lord's righteousness. Says in the title, to the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a Psalm of David. Now, an unusual title. We don't know what the tune of the Death of the Son is. It's not completely understood. It's not even completely agreed upon by a lot of commentators. It's from the Hebrew phrase Muth Laban, and it could refer to the death of Bathsheba's son that David had the sinful union with, and that's recorded in 2 Samuel 11, but we don't really know. And Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 actually go together. In, early, in the earliest um, translations, they were actually together as one psalm, but they've separated them in later, in later versions. Uh, psalm 9 flows through varying waves of prayer and praise. So in verse 1, says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now the four I wills in verses, verses 1 and 2. I will praise you. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. 
I will sing praise to your name. Those are my wills that we should apply to our own lives. Great examples of how we should live and walk and worship God. Verse 1, our entire, our entire being should praise God. With my whole heart, it says. And then we should declare God's working in our lives to others. If God is working in your lives, if if, you're, if there are amazing things that are going on because you're submitting yourself, you're yielding yourself to the Lord, tell others of that. You know, and, and that will encourage them to draw closer to God. I will be glad and rejoice in you, it says in verse 2. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So, recognize His goodness, recognize His blessings, and rejoice in that. And don't be afraid to praise Him outwardly. You know, don't be ashamed to praise God outwardly. And then in verses um, 3 and 4, it says, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish in your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on a throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Three and four, David now turns from individual praise to recognition of God's divine judgment. And he declares it boldly. When my enemies turn back, he says, they shall fall and perish in your presence. God's judgment is righteous and complete. And David proclaims that. We can do the same. You have maintained my right and my cause. For those who have given their lives over to God, God will be on their side. He will be our advocate. He'll maintain our cause. And he sits on the throne judging in righteousness. And for the nations, for those, for those unbelievers, for those who do not trust and put their faith in God, he will righteously judge them and he will, he will bring punishment down upon them. It says in verses five, uh, 5 and 6, I read verse 5, verse 6, O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. Again, God's judgment with the godless. And then verse 7, it says, But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in righteousness. So again, just a further declaration of God's righteous judgment. Verse 9, it says, The Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This speaks of his gracious dealing with those who are his children. See, the contrast between his judgment on the wicked and his grace that he pours forth to those who love him. Those who know your name, he says in verse 10, and put their trust in you. He has not forsaken those who seek him. That's awesome to know. You know, we're praying for this Iranian pastor who's been sentenced to death. I don't know Every day, every few hours, things change over there. Um, but, you know, they've brought up false charges against him, even the original charges of preaching Christianity and um, baptizing. 
lips looked up and, and you know, they, there was a death sentence in his head. Um, God, will, God will righteously judge. And those who love him and those who trust him, um, God will make things right. Now, in, in this life, we may go through persecution, we may go through troubles, but we always know that, that God is on our side and that we have something better to go to. Um, verse 11, it says, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Now David brings it back to himself. Consider my trouble for those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise. See, the reason David wants God to intervene is not necessarily selfish reason so that he can declare others of God's goodness. That I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he has executed. The wicked is snared in the works of his own hands. Meditation, Selah. That's really like a double Selah. Just think about that. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Verse 17, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Again, we see that grace. We see the judgment, that, that balance the judgment of God towards the wicked and the grace of God towards those who love him and trust him. Arise, O Lord, verse 19, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves but, but uh, to be but men. We're only but men. And sometimes people, when they get into power and positions, they put themselves... In, in, a, in the place of God. They put themselves, they raise themselves up in their own eyes. And David's, David's prayer is, here is that the Lord sort of knocks them down a peg, cuts their knees out from under them, lets them see their true, their true humanity. And then Selah, just another contemplation, meditation at the end of that song. And then in Psalm 10, a prayer and a song of confidence in God's victory over evil. Now, I, you know, the, just the theme of these songs tonight, just understanding God's judgment, that evil will not prevail, evil will not go on forever. You know, sometimes we think that the wicked just, they, they always get the breaks. That the ones who don't love God are the ones who are successful. And yet, this shows us that, that God is, is faithful towards those who love Him. And that He has confidence in God's victory. And again, this went along with, with uh, Psalm 9 most of the time, so there's no special title here. The first part of the psalm, verses 1 through 11, describes David's thoughts and ideas regarding God's handling of the wicked. This, these are David's thoughts. That is, 
that God is disinterested in the deeds of the wicked. And in fact, the wicked prosper regardless of their evil deeds. The second part, verses 12 through 18, turn, turns the focus to the theological facts about God instead of David's opinion. And we can easily do that. We can walk by sight and not by faith in this world. We can see, we observe how God's handling certain situations as we see them. Yet we don't go back and, and go back to the scriptures and see the truth that's there. And we focus our worldview to correspond to scripture. Most of our lives we live in two different worlds same time. We walk according to what we see and experience, but we have the knowledge of God's character and the promises from His Word. So, why we do that? Why do we walk according to sight and, and yet we do know God's character and promises? I think it's something that we just need to, as, as we get into the Word more and more, as we stay in the Word, as we, as we commit our lives to the Lord in prayer, He'll continue to reveal more and more of his character to us. And that will become more of, of how we see things. So in verse 1 in Psalm 10, it says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is not, God is in none of his thoughts. Now, God is in none of his thoughts. Actually, literally, it says, all his thoughts are, there is no God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, I can relate to a time in my life where I went through life and God was not in any of my thoughts never gave it a second thought, never even wondered if God was real, never wondered if he had any uh, desire to have a relationship with me, never thought about whether he was involved in my life. And this is who David's talking about. People who say that all their thoughts are there is no God. God is not involved. God does not care. That's how David views it. In verse 5 it says, His ways are always prospering, the ways of the wicked. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Imagine the, the arrogance of someone who says, I'm steady as a rock. Nothing can move me. And David views his enemies like that. He views God as not judging them. The enemies actually say God's judgments are far above, out of his sight. They don't even consider God's judgments. Verse 7 it says, His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. Now, I like the fact that David says secretly, secretly, secretly. It's not secret. 
Nothing is hidden from God. And yet David views that that evil person as doing all of these things under the radar, all of these things in secret. He catches the poor when he draws them into the net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Wow. Imagine getting to that point or being at that point. I know I was. Many of us might have been. Where we say, God's forgotten. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't see what I'm doing. He doesn't hear those words that come out of my mouth. He doesn't see those things that I do that are, that are displeasing to him. That's a better place to be. Verse 12, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your head. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. But you have seen, you observe trouble and grief. To repay it by your hand, the helpless commits himself to you. So now this is where he starts to shift. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, a little imprecatory, and the evil man, seek out his wickedness until you find one. Now David finds boldness. David's starting to see clearly how God deals with the wicked. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. And you see God now is turning and David is understanding God's character. You do, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. David's discouragement toward the end of this psalm turns to hope as he declares God's position as ruler over all the affairs of the earth and his ability to listen, it says in verse 17, and act in verse 18. I think, I think in all of these psalms we see, we see the distress turn to hope. We see grief turn to trust. And I, and I think that's pretty similar to a lot of our lives. A lot of the, just the waves that we go through in our lives. Sometimes we're at a place where we really, really trust God. And sometimes we're in a place, a really low place, where we just, we have no hope. But we just have to keep understanding and believing who God is. Trusting in his character, trusting in his faithfulness. And hopefully we'll be more on those times that we really believe and trust in him. And know that and know that he will righteously judge. So as we go through the Psalms, we're going to see a lot of David's heart. We're going to see how it really uh, just applies to our heart, to where we're at in a lot of the places a lot of the things that we're going through in our lives. So I pray that you're blessed by, by going through the Psalms and how I have been. And um, why don't we close in prayer and then David will close us out in worship.